This spring, the Metropolitan Opera Guild will mark its return to in-person galas with the 17th Annual Opera News Awards. We would love you to join us for this exciting occasion. This year's honorees, mezzo-soprano Denise Graves, baritone Quinn Kelsey, and soprano Elza Vandenhever will be feted at a black tie gala on Sunday, April 3rd, 2022 at the Plaza Hotel. This glamorous evening will include a silent and live auction and will celebrate our honorees via speeches, performance footage, and exclusive musical tributes. Tickets can be purchased at www.metgill.org awards or by calling 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The renowned stage director, David McVicker, said the following about which opera. Writing in the French language changed the way that Verdi composed. When you do the French version, you're throwing yourself into the original conception of the piece as a French grand opera, which is a very different beast from an Italian opera. Find out the answer on today's Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. It was, of course, Verdi's opera Don Carlo. For the first time in the company's history, the Metropolitan Opera is presenting Verdi's tragic opera Don Carlo in its original five-act French version. Set during the period of the tumultuous Spanish Inquisition, this opera boasts a superstar cast, including Matthew Polanzani, Sonia Yoncheva, Jamie Barton, and Eric Owens. Join lecturer John J.H. Muller as he explores the music and history of this French grand opera. So, on Don Carlo, I guess it's obligatory for me to say this is Verdi's most ambitious opera, um, because it is, and it's also his longest when you do it in the five-act format. Along with that, as you probably know, he revised it a number of times over a period of almost 20 years. So clearly he had a high regard for the piece, um, and I will get into some of that. I'm going to go over some background, and then I want to get into the characters in the opera, because although it is a French grand opera and the spectacle is part of French grand opera, he's also got some wonderful stories uh, between the characters and uh, the personal relationships. And that's something, of course, Verdi always did very well in terms of his musical characterization. So I want to spend most of my time there with those examples. But for starters, uh, talk about the importance of the 1860s in Verdi's career. Uh, we see as, uh, as we go a decade by decade, Verdi's productivity drops off until we get to the 1860s and he composed only two operas. And if you want to take a long view of the word decade and go to 1871, you could add Aida. What La Forza, La Forza del Destino, uh, Don Carlo and Aida all have in common is that they were written on foreign commission, uh, not written initially for an Italian opera house. And that's the direction he saw his career uh, going in. And uh, if you just want to go ahead, 
At the end of his life, he's writing one opera a decade with Otello and then Falstaff. Uh, so this is a significant uh, decade in terms of the foreign commission issue. He was frustrated with the conditions in Italy. And also, they didn't feel appreciated. And of course, the ongoing issue of censorship that was going right up to the end of the 1850s with Unbalu and Mascara. And so he was writing, uh, La Forza was for St. Petersburg uh, in Russia. And then, of course, Don Carlo for Paris, where the conditions were much better and much more suitable uh, to him. That's another reason. It wasn't just money. It was artistic. Now, also going on in the 1860s is Verdi's handling of a more large-scale structure in opera. You think of La Forza, which is a sprawling piece, which he had to hold together, and Don Carlo with its five acts. He's clearly trying to move away from the more number opera style of writing to a more, more of a continuity. The fact is Verdi's style is developing throughout his entire career. And it's not always a linear development, but in the 1860s, we really do see some important musical developments in Verdi, and that's certainly true in Don Carlo. Uh, now, Verdi was no newcomer to French opera. He had reworked one of his early operas for the French stage, and uh, maybe more significantly, in the mid-1850s, he wrote an opera specifically for Paris, Les Vepres Siciliennes, which we usually know better as I Vespri Siciliani, The Sicilian Vespers. But that was originally a French grand opera, and so Verdi was familiar with the nature of the opera, the expectations of grand opera, and the demands it placed upon the composer. Verdi complained when he was writing uh, Sicilian Vespers how much music he had to write. Italian operas were shorter, and just how much music he had to churn out for France, and of course there was the obligatory ballet. Uh, you had to have the ballet. French opera uh, placed a great emphasis on ballet, going back to its origins, opera's origins in France in uh, the 17th century. And, uh, and of course, he knew the music of Meyerbeer, uh, who was the king of French grand opera, and Meyerbeer had certainly influenced Verdi. The fact is there is no definitive version of Don Carlo. What's clear is it was always a French opera for Verdi. And he recognized, for practical reasons, it would have to be performed in Italian. He would have to allow Italian translations because that was really the international operatic language. If he insisted on French, it would only be done in France. This was a French opera to Verdi. And I'll say a little bit more about that as we go along. So as you see, it had its premiere in Paris, five acts in French. That was very typical in 1867. But before the first performance, Verdi realized he had written too much music. There were some very strict guidelines about when the opera began and when it ended in Paris. And Verdi realized he had written far too much music. Uh, this is why I made that comment about the Sicilian Vespers and Verdi's complaint he had to write so much. And now in 1867, he's written far too much music, so he cut it before the first performance. And when I say cut it, it disappeared and was not discovered until 1970. This cut music, and since then, uh, people have started adding it back in. For a while there, it seemed as if Verdi was still composing the opera, <laughs> as uh, one production or recording after, after another added some of this um, uh, cut music, again, discovered in 1970. So that was the first version of the piece. 
five acts in French in 1867, uh, but it got picked up at, uh, with other opera houses outside of France in Italian, and they started cutting it and uh, in various ways. Verdi had a chance to make some revisions on it for a performance in Naples in 1872. Uh, Verdi kept tinkering with the work in large-scale and small-scale ways. Um, some of the cuts that were often made concerned the first act, which sometimes was left out completely. Now, Verdi made a thorough revision of the piece uh, in 1882-83. Now in four acts, Verdi's thought was, everybody's cutting my opera. I'm the composer. Why don't I revisit it and make, put it in a form that suits me? So he left out the first act, okay, and then heavily revised it in 1883. Realized this is just before Otello. It's right after his revision of Simone Bocanegra in the form in which we know it today. So this is really Verdi at the height of his powers now revising uh, the opera and uh, in French, okay, a four-act version in French, but it was done at La Scala in Italian in 1884, okay. And for many, many years, that four-act version in Italian was pretty much the version that you heard. That was pretty much the standard version. Um, and then a couple of years later, we get what's known as the Modena version. Um, and this was for a performance in that Italian city. And they took the original Act One, translated it into Italian, and then grafted it onto Verdi's revision of 84. Okay? And to many people, this gives you the best of both worlds. It gives you very important music from the first act. It gives you the revision of 1884. And it's practical. It's in Italian. And that's how most people do it. Uh, certainly, French productions have become more common. Uh, but it's still, I think most people know it, and maybe more to the point, most singers know it as an Italian opera. Uh, but that Modena version, again, has five acts in Italian. Now you might think, well, doesn't this create a kind of stylistic mishmash? Um, something from 1867 and then something from 1884. The fact is, when you look at the original version of 67, you have music that sounds like earlier Verdi, and you have some more advanced ideas. So even in 1867, you've got an opera that has kind of a blending of some of Verdi's style. This becomes even more pronounced, though, when you go to the 1883 version. But as I said, it, to Verdi, it was always a French opera, but he recognized the accommodations that had to be made to have it performed. And as far as the use of the French language versus the Italian, uh, Will Crutchfield, in an article in the Times, I guess a few weeks ago, had an interesting point that it's a cumulative effect. It's not one specific difference in the French or the Italian, but over the period of the opera, um, these things just start to add up. Uh, issues of meter, where the French meter is different from the Italian, issues of accent, and that Verdi was sculpting his melodies to suit the French language, not the Italian language. And after a while, there is this cumulative effect um, but, you know, I think it really, you have to have a real feel for French and the French language to, uh, I think, get a sense of this. It may be more important to the singers or to people who are really going to do a deep, in-depth study of this piece and compare it to the Italian. Um, but uh, I thought that idea about the, accumulate, the cumulative effect was an interesting one. 
Now, I thought you might be interested in the history of the piece at the Met itself. Uh, it was more than 50 years after its premiere that it made it to the Met. And this was in five acts in 1920, with some significant cuts, however. They included the Act Three ballet. And I point out it had some of the greatest singers of the day, Rosa Poncel, uh, Giovanni Martinelli, and the baritone Giuseppe De Luca. So, I mean, this was an all-star cast um, there in 1920. And then it was done for two more seasons, but now shorn of the original first act, now in with just the uh, four-act version. And um, you see that Shaliapin, the famous Russian bass, uh, noted as a singing actor, sang King Philip in uh, 1922. Inexplicably, the scene between the king and the Grand Inquisitor had been cut from the 1920 performance. It was added back when Shaliapin sang it. I presumed to get the effect of him as a singing actor. Uh, it's such a great scene, it's surprising they would cut it, but uh, they uh, restored it for Shaliapin. But after those three seasons, the opera disappeared. So now we go on to the Rudolf Bing regime. Bing, uh, his first year was 1850, and Bing wanted to make a bang with his opening night. So he chose Don Carlo. And he uh, loved Verdi, and he had some excellent Verdi singers. This, of course, was in four acts in Italian. That was the standard way of doing it. Uh, but again, that was Bing's inaugural season. Uh, the men in the cast were particularly uh, renowned. You see Berling, uh, Robert Merrill, Cesare Siepi. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a cast, okay? Uh, let's see, and Jerome Hines, a young Jerome Hines, was the Grand Inquisitor. Now, I don't know if you remember him, but he was 6'7", okay? And he would have towered over C.A.P., who was a substantial figure on the stage. Um, so that was a 1950 uh, production, and Margaret Webster came from the world of the theater. And uh, so in 1950, this was a big deal, to have a theatrical director come to the Met, but that's what Rudolph Bing wanted. And she was the director of that production, which lasted about 30 years. And as a matter of fact, when I first saw Don Carlo in the early 1970s, it was that production. Um, and uh, that's how I learned the opera in four acts and in Italian. Um, it wasn't until 1979, as I point out here, there was a new production directed by John Dexter. Um, this was in five acts, but Italian. Um, the Modena version, essentially, but the Dexter production added some of that cut music. He brought some of that back. And then some 30 years later, there was a new production, uh, 2010. Uh, again, the Modena version, leaving out the cut music that Dexter had put in, okay? Um, and that cut music that was put in is, to many people, a very important scene at the very start of the opera, where we see Elizabeth uh, distributing alms to the poor, and you see the destruction that's uh, uh, been wreaked on France as a result of the war, and uh, it really establishes her character at the very beginning, but Verdi had cut that, um, and uh, sometimes it's added, sometimes it isn't. Now, as far as the production we are going to see now, or maybe you've already seen it, uh, 2022, uh, for the first time in French at the Met, okay, in five acts. Now, I've made a mistake. This is not essentially the 1867 version. The first act is, it has to be. 
but the rest of it apparently is more the 1883 revision, okay, with some of the music from the first version added where I guess the conductor thinks that it is, it is worthwhile. But so, you see, we're really not seeing the work of 1867. We're hearing it in French, but it's a mixture of the first act of 1867 and parts of that and largely the revision that Verdi made. And you know, when you start doing this, you start winding up with a version of the piece that never really existed. But again, there is no definitive version of this composition. Now, uh, the ballet, of course, has been removed. The one part of the work that was obligatory uh, for the French has been taken out because it's not obligatory for us. And it's 15 minutes of music, and you know, it would make it even longer, um, so it is being omitted in this production. However, they are restoring one of the cut sections, that is, that was cut before its first performance. And I want to talk about that a little bit. It's quite, quite interesting, because I think you'll recognize the music when you hear it. This is a scene right after Rodrigue is shot and killed. And Philippe is there, and he starts a lament. And it's joined in by Carlo, and then the chorus, okay? A, a wonderful lament, a kind of dirge for his, his uh, dead, uh, very close friend. Um, Verdi cut it, so nobody knew the music. In uh, 1874, when he wrote the Requiem, that became the basis for the Lacrimosa, that wonderful uh, lament for soloists and chorus in the Verdi Requiem. So when you hear this scene, if it sounds familiar, that's the reason. And I think in terms of these versions and so forth, I won't say more. I'm now, as far as the music goes, as I said earlier, the 1867 version has elements of the older Verdi style and also aspects that are more forward-looking. Um, there is a rather extensive use of recurring themes in the opera. This isn't new for Verdi, but the number of them uh, really is quite extensive for the composer. Um, and also, along with the spectacle, that was part of French Grand Opera, there is the characterization. And um, Andrew Porter, who is a noted Verdian, uh, made the point that there are two poles in this opera, Rodrigue on the one hand, who is really a figure of the Enlightenment, the 18th century Enlightenment, not a figure of 16th century Spain. But at any rate, you have him as this very forward-looking character, and the other pole is, of course, the Grand Inquisitor a reactionary, and clearly to Verdi, he represented the church, the Catholic church, and everything that was wrong with it, okay? So these are the poles of the opera, and then you have the other characters in between, and they are all interacting with one another in some way or another. Um, in the, among the interconnections, I mean, Rodrigue himself is a confidant to the king, um, and he's also a very close friend to Carlo. Um, and then Princess Eboli, uh, is uh, in love with Carlos, in Carlo. Uh, she has an affair with the king, and she also is a close friend to Elizabeth. Um, and so she's connected to a number of them. And therefore, this is the reason why ensembles are very important in this opera, whether they are duets or whether they're, it's a quartet. Um, this is a very important part. Going to my first example, uh, mostly I want to stick to the French version of the opera what it was like in 1867. But I do want to show you one of Verdi's uh, changes that he made for 1883. And this concerns the opening of Act Three, 
Originally, Act Three, of course, was going to have in its first scene the ballet. So to set the audience up for that, uh, the um, original Act Three began with a short festive fanfare, a curtain raiser, followed by a, a brief chorus. Okay, this was to get you ready, get you in the mood for the ballet. But when he revised it in 1883, Verdi totally changed it. Now, because there's no ballet, and he takes what was the theme of Carlo's aria in Act One and uses that as a about a three-minute development uh, for the introduction. And what it's doing really is hearkening back to his first meet, uh, his thoughts of the Queen uh, before he even met Elizabeth. It uh, suggests Act Two, uh, where he is clearly still in love with her, but she's keeping her distance. And of course, it's going to look forward to what happens in Act Three. Uh, so this is Verdi more the composer interested in the orchestra. And it's a striking difference between uh, this short fanfare that he has in uh, his first version and what he uses for the 1883 version. <laughs> continues in that manner for a couple of more minutes. Uh, again, that's the theme of the aria um, Carlos sings early in Act One. And as I said, maybe it suggests his continued love for, for Elizabeth. Uh, but remember, remember, this revision was done just before Otello. I mean, really, this is Verdi's late style, this interest in working, interest in working with the theme and the importance of the orchestra. Um, and I suspect you will hear it tonight. Uh, that that's part of the, uh, the, the 1883 version. Um, now, uh, another section I want to play for you from Act One uh, now and in French is the duet between Elisabeth and Carlo. Um, this is very important. It's very important to have Act One to establish the love between the two of them. When Act One is uh, lost, um, you never have that. Um, and it just doesn't make very good dramatic sense. Uh, more than that, there's a wonderful suspenseful buildup here because he knows who she is, but she doesn't know who he is. And his singing becomes more and more ardent, and the suspense starts to build, and finally she sees his portrait in the casket and realizes this is the guy I'm singing with. Uh, but you really feel the buildup here, and as he's almost kind of teasing her because he knows who she is. And then this leads to a duet, um, and that's where my example will start. It's kind of in the nature of a cabaletta uh, from Italian opera. And uh, she sings the melody, then you hear cannon fire in the distance. 
that of course is uh, announcing the truce that's been made. However, that very truce is what's going to take Elizabeth away from Carlo because she now has to, for reasons of state, she now has to, has to marry his father, not him. Um, maybe the cannon fire also might suggest the fireworks have been going on between the two of them and it's not going to last and there's just a rapturous passage for them and then they sing that melody together. Also, the melody of that duet comes back in her aria in Act V as a reminiscence as she's thinking about Carlo. Uh, several themes from earlier in the opera come back. Well, you can't hear it as a reminiscence if you've never heard it. Now, uh, in Act II, I want to talk about a very important scene. I'm not going to play it for you. And that is the friendship duet between Carlo and Rodrigue, one of the most famous numbers in the piece and also rather, you might say, backward-looking in its style. It would remind you of earlier Verdi, the way they sing, as some people put it, shoulder to shoulder, singing along in thirds, and it closes in the orchestra with a big noisy uh, reprise. But it's a wonderful musical number, and again, showing the solidarity of the two of them, the friendship of the two of them. However, I should point out, it's part of a larger scene. 
because after they sing their duet, uh, then you get the entrance of the king and queen going towards the monastery. And then some of the friendship duet comes back. So it isn't so much an old-fashioned musical number, but rather he's taken his older style and made it part of a larger complex there in Act Two. Um, also important here, that melody comes back a number of times in the opera. It's going to come back during the big scene in Act Three, when Carlo draws his sword on his father, and the only person who will disarm him, the only one who really can, is his friend Rodrigue. And you hear a reminiscence of it in there, and of course in his death scene, in Rodrigue's death scene, uh, the theme comes back. So uh, this melody, it's a wonderful uh, scene in itself, but it's one of the, mo the uh, uh, themes that recurs later in the opera, uh, reminding you of the closeness of these two characters. What I want to look at from Act Two is the duet between the king, Philippe, and Rodrigue. This gave Verdi more trouble than any other part of the opera uh, in that he revised it over and over again, or maybe that just shows how important it was to him. Uh, the scene between uh, the king and his confidant, someone who could speak to him in a way that nobody else really could, uh, even his own son. And uh, initially, it was in a more traditional form, that is, rather clear-cut structure. And as Verdi started to work on it, he added music to it, and it became more fluid. Initially, uh, Rodrigue is singing to the king, describing the destruction of the war, and the situation in Flanders, and Rodrigue is really pleading the case of the Flemish. And the king is listening to him, at any rate. Uh, and uh, so that's the opening section. Where my example is going to pick up is near the close, where the king opens up his heart. He says he will open up his heart, and uh, this is something he's never done before. And he lets, uh, lets on that he has concerns about Elizabeth and his son. Okay, so he's opening up his heart to Rodrigue about this. And then in the closing section, uh, Rodrigue has an ascending line where he sings about the dawn of a new day. The idea that the king, in opening up his heart, this is a big step, but maybe this will represent a new day in a number of ways. Okay, not just in the king being more open to him, but perhaps being receptive to his pleadings for Flanders. Um, and so that constitutes the close of what's really a large duet complex. And as I said, Verdi worked on this more than any other scene in the opera. Oh, my God. 
Rodrigue is singing about the dawning of a new day, but at the end, with that ominous music, the king is, uh, twice says to beware the Grand Inquisitor. You know, stay clear of the Grand Inquisitor. He wants no part of your uh, forward-looking thinking. Um, now, in the case of Act Three, I'm not going to play any music from it, but I do need to talk about it um, somewhat. In the first scene of Act Three, uh, very significantly, Carlo is uh, going to meet with the Queen. However, Eboli shows up and thinks that Carlo's affection is directed towards her. Uh, Eboli's in love with Carlo. And now the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. She has some damning, uh, um, damning knowledge about Carlo and Elizabeth. Um, and at one point, Rodrigue threatens to kill Eboli um, if she doesn't keep quiet about it. So that's a very important development in Act Three. And again, this is more part of the uh, interrelationships of the characters, not part of the spectacle of the opera. But Verdi realized the work needed spectacle and there wasn't any in Schiller's play. As you probably know, this work uh, opera was based largely on a play by Schiller. And Verdi and Schiller uh, were really kind of like-minded people in terms of issues of freedom and uh, forward-looking thinking politically. And uh, Verdi set more Schiller uh, plays than any other poet, um, including Shakespeare. Um, and so he's very one, much at one with Schiller. However, Schiller did not have any scene in his play that would be suitable for a spectacle. So it was Verdi's idea to add the big scene in uh, uh, scene two of act three, the auto da fe, the scene where you gather everyone on stage, the chorus, the soloists, and you have the burning of the heretics um, at the stake. This was actually inspired by an actual uh, painting of, a, of an auto da fe scene uh, but Verdi decided that's what we can add to the piece that's not in Schiller that will give the important spectacle. Uh, again, getting everybody on the stage. And in the original uh, plan for the opera in Paris, there's a very long list of all the different functionaries who have to process onto the stage, both religious figures and uh, figures of state, um, and then chorus, and there's uh, music on the stage. This was what was expected. By the way, the word auto da fe means uh, act of faith. So that is the scene of the spectacle. And it's interesting how Verdi has music for every group there. He's got some rousing music for the crowd that's assembled. And then there's this just chilling music that he writes, this dirge-like music as the heretics are brought out. Um, and then you have the pleading of the Flemish deputies, uh, you know, singing a very lyrical line, singing for the lives of the people who are going to be burnt at the stake. Then um, all of this builds up into a big, uh, what they call in Italian, a pezzo concertato, a concerted piece, a frozen ensemble, where everybody's standing there and singing their different lines. And it's at this point where Carlo, again, challenges his father, draws his sword, and it's Rodrigue who... Uh, Stops the, uh, stops the action there. Um, and then at the end, of course, they are burnt at the stake and you hear the celestial voice. Uh, but that music that Verdi wrote as the, those people are brought out is just uh, chilling in its quality, uh, frightening, um, especially in contrast to all the uh, more rousing music that he writes in this uh, scene two of act three. Now, it was typical in French grand opera to place your big spectacle in Act Three, 
That's where the ballet usually was. It was act four where you focused more on the inner world of the characters. This becomes far more of an intimate act, and that is certainly true in this opera, and especially the very beginning of act four, because nothing is more intimate than the scene with the king, and reflecting on the fact that uh, she never had the love of Elizabeth. And um, it starts with a three-minute introduction, uh, first a cello solo, and then a series of lamenting figures in the orchestra. I was tempted to play that instead of his aria, but I decided not to. Uh, but there is this wonderful introduction that is really capturing the king and his thought. He stayed up all night. He's there at his, his desk um, in his room, and uh, you have this lament. Again, nothing could be more intimate in comparison to what's happened in the previous act. And then Philip's opening line, um, it's as if he's lost in thought. And uh, he usually sings it very softly. And this particular aria does not have a set form. It really unfolds as a kind of arioso with certain music coming back here and there, sometimes more recitative-like and sometimes more in a full-blown aria style. But it's a very flexible handling of the melodic writing, uh, flexible in terms of what Philip is singing at that point. Now, uh, here's a point on the subject of the language. Uh, the aria in uh, the French is uh, Elle ne m'aime pas, all right? And there's a climax where the bass sings at the top of his register and then comes down, Elle ne m'aime pas. But in Italian, it starts, Amor per me non ha. Uh, in other words, in French, it's on a downbeat, Elle. In Italian, it's Amor per me non ha. And, you know, this is one of many little things, but it's noticeable in here because it's such a famous line. And in a way, in the Italian, it launches the note, amor per me non ha. Um, but in the Italian, the first word is amor. Um, and in the French, it's elle, uh, referring to her, uh, the woman. Um, and so, you know, there's a no translation can be perfect. Um, but this is something that really strikes me, I guess, because it's such a famous aria, uh, the difference in the accentuation, where with the Italian you get the upbeat. Thank you. 
noticed throughout the aria the importance of the cello. Again, you have this solo at the very start, which you didn't hear, uh, but even in the passage I played for you, the cello or cello section remains very important, and it's the last thing you hear at the end of the opera. Seems as if the cello was the king in the, or uh, in the orchestra, and it's conveying his innermost thoughts there in the orchestra as he is singing. Um, I hope you caught that spot at the end where he just hits right on the word el, uh, whereas in the Italian, again, it's amor, um, has that upbeat, which isn't there in the, in the French. Right after this, we get the famous confrontation with the Grand Inquisitor. One of the great scenes in Verdi, it's really in two parts. In the beginning, they're talking about Carlo, what to do about Carlo, and it is quite chilling how quickly they're dismissed with him. Uh, you know, he can be killed, he can be executed. Uh, but the king is discussing his son and what to do with Carlo, and is it acceptable to have him executed? And the Grand Inquisitor says, God gave up his son. Well, I think the situations are a little bit different. Um, but uh, they, they get rid of Carlo quite quickly. The real issue is Rodrigue, okay? And that's what the Grand Inquisitor wants to bring up in this scene. Um, there's a wonderful uh, introductory melody. We hear it several times in the scene for the Grand Inquisitor. He's in his 90s. He's blind. Um, again, that's probably Verdi's view of the church. It's ancient, and it's blind, it's reactionary, and, um, and uh, he's got this uh, mostly in the low register with a contrabassoon, and that contrabassoon is just growling around there in the bottom of the orchestra. I think it may be a little bit hard to hear on my recording, but it's a wonderful use of that very low-voiced member of the orchestra. And um, I'm picking it up near the end where uh, the king has said, you know, are we, are we good here? And the Grand Inquisitor says, perhaps. Um, and then he leaves, you'll hear his music, and there's a wonderful line for, uh, for the bass here where he rockets up to the upper register and then descends two octaves uh, where he's singing that the, uh, the king must always bow down to the priest. And the music seems to be conveying uh, uh, all the rage of the king and also his powerlessness. Um, he's the king of this incredible empire, and yet he's powerless. Um, and it's, it's an extraordinary line for the king, for Philippe. Um, unfortunately, the low note, you often have to take on faith. two octave descent there, uh, rising up to the top and then down. It's sort of rage and then capitulation. 
what can he do? And uh, José Van Damme could really roar into the top note, but again, two octaves lower, you kind of have to take it on faith. Uh, another comparison in the French and the Italian, the French tends to be very direct in its expression. The Italian winds up being more uh, flowery, more poetic. In the French, he's saying, the king must bow to the priest. In the Italian, it's, uh, the version is, uh, the throne bows before the altar. So using the word throne to represent the king and altar, obviously, the priest. I kind of like it. It's a very nice uh, in a literary standpoint, but it doesn't really reflect the way the French is written in the libretto. The French is, is more direct, and the Italian versions tend to be more, more flowery. Um, all right. Uh, later in this same act, you have a confrontation. Uh, the king believes, uh, incorrectly, that Elizabeth has been unfaithful to him. Um, and then Elizabeth finds out that uh, um, Eboli had had an affair with the king. So she's going to be banished. She has to go into a, 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 a convent. And this is where she sings the real show-stopping aria of the opera, Odon Fatale, uh, where she curses her fatal beauty. Um, but the nature of this aria, again, as I called it, the show-stopping quality, really suits her character who she is throughout this work. And uh, it has the elements of the older style double aria of Italian opera, where you'd have a recitatif that would lead up to an initial aria that's reflective and lyrical, usually ending with a little with a cadenza. And then there'd be some new information brought to bear, and that would bring about the second aria, the cavalletta, where you take a stand and you plan to do something. Verdi has these elements in this. However, it's far more fluid. He blends them together. I'm going to pick up partway into this opening reflective aria, and you'll even hear a little cadenza-like uh, figure at the end of it. And then she realizes, before going into the convent, she's got to do something. She can save Carlo. And then instead of singing a long cabaletta with lots of florid writing, she just launches into a one-page uh, um, uh, very uh, powerful writing uh, about her decision to save Carlo. Uh, so my point is Verdi's working with some of those traditional elements of a, uh, the, the form, but he's blending them together, all right? And, uh, and this is 1867, okay? So even there, uh, he has this more forward-looking approach to conventional forms in opera. Thank you. 
at the end there's that resolve to uh, do something and that traditionally is where you'd have a cabaletta. Uh, now to act five, Verdi has saved the soprano's aria for the last act and it is a very large one uh, in a basic ABA format but it has a lengthy introduction. Um, it's a little bit like the Requiem where the soprano in the Requiem gets her big scene at the very end in the Liberame. The other three soloists have had their uh, big moment and she gets hers at the end. So it is here in Don Carlo and it's in the middle section where she's reminiscing about Carlo because she's going to meet him there uh, before he goes off. That's the plan and you get a return of some music from the first act and you also get a return of some music from the second act where Carlo had swooned and fainted dead away. It's a beautiful music and that's brought back here. But where my example will start is the return of the A section where she's contemplating uh, Charles V, you know, thought to be dead and uh, buried there. Uh, whether he is or not is uh, a little bit open to question. <laughs> Biggest differences between the 1867 version and 1883-84 is the very ending of the opera. 
So I thought I'd play the endings in reverse, uh, play you the later ending, what Verdi did. Uh, in both cases, it, at the close, it's the same. You hear the monk come out singing, um, and they recognize him as Charles V. He grabs Carlo and pulls him inside the monastery to safety because the members of the Inquisition are there, and then the king recognizes him as his father. In the 1884 ending, it's fortissimo after that, and the brass section blares in the music of the monks that they had been singing in Act Two. Verdi's revised ending in Italian, okay, with this very noisy conclusion, the brass section playing again the music that the monks had been singing in um, Act Two. It's interesting because the ending for 67 in some ways is much more subtle and uh, the many people like it better. And although the Metz production, as I said earlier, is largely working with the revision, here they go back to 67. Okay, and what happens is much of the music is the same. We have the monks chanting, uh, uh, the king recognizes his father, but then you hear monks, uh, the monk, uh, Charles V, then you hear the monks chanting very quietly, and it ends softly, um, and it's very mysterious, and just seems to be such a better ending to the opera, and yet this was his original idea. Uh, so uh, composers don't always you know, get better, uh, as they get older, uh, it can be, uh, you know, here and there. Um, so here is the original ending of the work.
That was Metropolitan Opera Guild lecturer John J.H. Muller discussing Verdi's ambitious tale of doomed love amid the Spanish nobility. This brand new Met production can be seen in cinemas through the upcoming live and HD broadcast on March 26, 2022. For more information, visit metopera.org and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.